The Water Values Podcast, Session 18. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Water Values Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. It's the week of July 4th, and I wish everyone out there a safe and happy holiday. Hope you'll be spending time with family and away from the office. Myself, we're going camping again this weekend. This time you're Crested Butte, Colorado, and we're really looking forward to it, especially the great 4th of July parade that happens every year in Crested Butte. I've also ridden the 401, a famous mountain bike trail near Crested Butte twice now, and we'll see if I get another run in. Before we get on to today's show, I want to thank Wally in Colorado for the five-star review and his comments. Wally, I'll get a guest to speak about how water augmentation, and I'll also throw in some other finer points of how water law in Colorado works. I've got several ideas for you. Uh, Now on to today's show. Bill Wilson, the general manager of the Lower Colorado River Authority in Texas, joins us. Bill is a former Texas Secretary of State, Texas Department of Transportation head, and he's also been in private industry. He provides a wealth of knowledge, especially about how utilities think through P3s and infrastructure financing. His experience with the Texas Department of Transportation gives him some great insight into how the Water Infrastructure Finance and Investment Act, a part of the larger Water Resources Reform and Development Act, might play out in terms of stimulating more private sector investment and P3s in the water sector. Bill also fills us in on what it's like to hit up a water agency that is experiencing massive growth at the same time that Texas is experiencing record drought. As you can imagine, it's quite a challenge. So keep on listening to hear Phil's thoughts on these topics and more. And remember to tune in to the end for the all-important disclaimer. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Phil, thanks very much for taking time out of your day to come on to the Water Values Podcast. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, To start off, could you just tell us a little about your background? Sure, Dave. I'm glad to be here and look forward to this conversation. I am the uh, general manager and CEO of what's called the Lower Colorado River Authority, LCRA. We are a public power entity here in Texas, and I've been on the job for about four months. Before that, I worked as the executive director of the Texas Department of Transportation, so I ran transportation here in the state as staff. Uh, TxDOT is a a $12 billion a year entity with about 10,000 employees. And so I had the opportunity to that for about two and a half years. And before that, I was in the private sector working for Luminant, which is the state's largest electric generation company. Uh, oh. So in and out of government, doing various roles. Uh, my last role significantly in state government before TxDOT was I was Texas Secretary of State. Great. Well, th- thanks very much. It certainly seems like you've got a terrific background for infrastructure uh, projects. And and could, to that end, could you tell us a little bit just about the history uh, and the background on the Lower Colorado River Authority? Sure. LCRA was created in 1934 by the Texas State Legislature, and it was created to provide energy, water, and community service. We have no taxing authority, and we operate solely on our revenues from supplying energy, water, and those services. For more than 75 years we've been in business, we both have power generation uh, and transmission, along with selling water. And so uh, in order for us to be successful, we have to be very business-like focused, like a laser, on providing those value and services. Our primary customers on the electric side 
part, co-ops in cities. So the power we manufacture and sell goes to them. We got in that business because of the water business. Uh, 70-plus years ago when LCR was being created, we built these dams. We have uh, six dams and six lakes, and those dams created hydropower. And as Texas was trying to electrify itself, we started selling that electric power made from hydro that then went and needed to be uh, transported somewhere. So we got in the transmission business. And once we got into the power business, the transmission business, we had a demand for more public power for cities and co-ops. So we started creating and building uh, gas-fired and coal-fired power plants. So, so over the past seven years, uh, to a very significant footprint here in our state to provide energy and water for the people of Texas. Okay, great. Um, in, in terms of your kind of geographic footprint, where, where is the Lower Colorado River Authority located? The Lower Colorado River Authority uh, covers about a million people. We have uh, 5,150 miles of transmission lines, and we start what's really just around the Abilene area, uh, if you take a point of demarcation. So if you go to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is north Texas, and you drive about three and a half hours west uh, and then take a left, that's pretty much where the lower Colorado River starts. Uh, we then uh, go all the way from that part of the state all the way down to Matagorda Bay. So our service area for water is a 600-mile stretch from the lower Colorado River between San Saba and the Gulf Coast, and that covers about 58 Texas counties along with our electric and more than 36,000 square miles. Well, that's an absolutely massive uh, geographic area that you're covering. Um, What about... You know, you said that it started with water, right? And the water kind of led into the power generation. Um, what are the main issues that the Lower Colorado River Authority has presently uh, concerning water supply? You know, we're a fast-growing state. Uh, we've been adding more than 1,000 people a day to Texas uh, for the past several years. And so that growth has put extraordinary challenges in all our resources, whether it's water, power, transportation. You combine that with a very significant drought. Uh, We are in a time right now in our state where there's a possibility that in the next few months we'll be in a drought, worse than a drought of record. And so you combine enormous growth, population demand, industry moving here, and a drought. It puts enormous strains on the system. Uh, it's in our seventh year right now of a record-breaking drought. It could be the worst ever. And so we're very concerned about that. Uh, we run these six lakes and six dams. We have rights to more than 2.1 million acre-feet of water per year. And right now we're at about 40% full. And that's after some very significant rainstorms we've had over the past few weeks. As a matter of fact, as of uh, about a month ago, we were at 33% full in our lakes. And that's a strong concern because we have to supply the water supply both for our urban areas like the city of Austin uh, and other customers in this footprint, uh, industrial customers as well, along with the uh, agricultural interruptible water we have not been able to supply the past three years uh, in the lower basin of our, our river. Well, so there's a lot in there that you, you just talked about. Uh, let's Let's start off with the population explosion that's going on in Texas, how do you keep up with the infrastructure required to serve that those new populations coming in there? Oh, it's very difficult. Uh, whether it's, like I 
a large part of our thought process right now has been trying to find new water supply. LCRA has made a real commitment in the past year by our board to go after new water supply. Uh, we're in the process right now of trying to add 100,000 acre feet. 90,000 acre feet of that is going to be an off-channel lower basin reservoir. Uh, we're in the process right now of identifying how we can possibly pay for that. It's been permitted, the land's been acquired, the engineering has been done, and that will create uh, 90,000 acre feet uh, in the lower basin, which is uh, close to the Houston area if you're gonna set yourself geographically outside of the state. We're also looking at conjunctive use of well water or groundwater with another 10,000 acre feet. And so those are first steps that our board has taken to significantly try to acquire new water to try to address that growth. We're also looking at other reservoirs in the future and one of the, the somewhat terms of art we're, we're using is almost a modular reservoir. Are there opportunities there within the river to try to take 5,000, 10,000 acre feet and utilize that modular reservoir that you can start small with and then build on in the future as you have more money uh, to expand as going forward. Fascinating concept uh, of the modular reservoir. Uh, you mentioned how, how you're trying to figure out how you're going to pay for all this. Are there what types of plans? Is it just rate increases, or is there kind of grant money available? Or I know that Texas passed a a major uh, water infrastructure funding program last year. What are what are the sources of funds you're thinking about using for your infrastructure projects? Yeah, I think we have a good toolkit for source of funds. Uh, and if you treat what the legislature was very smart in creating, they've had a series of tools they've built up. Uh, most recently, they passed a program called SWIFT. It's a state water implementation fund for Texas. That is using what's part of what we call our rainy day fund. Our rainy day fund are monies that have come in primarily from oil and gas severance taxes. And the legislature and then the voters passed a constitutional amendment last November to allow that money to be put to use. And really, it's a revolving loan fund. Uh, there are other funds that we also have that we've created in Texas, a revolving loan fund. So LCR and other entities can go forward and they can borrow against that money. In many ways, that's where our mortgage comes from. And so the source of funds are available. It's often uh, cheaper than borrowing money anywhere else because of the cost of capital. You've got the state's good faith and credit behind it. It's double A AA or triple A. And so you're going to save significantly in your capital costs, and it's flexible. Uh, where the challenge comes in, after you borrow that money, you've got to pay it back. And so we're looking at all sorts of revenues, whether they're grants, uh, using existing resources within LCRA, through our businesses, and trying to identify ways to pay that money back once we go forward to borrow. And so we're in the process right now of applying for a loan from the Water Development Board for about $225 million. That'll build that, that lower basin reservoir. And then looking at how we can pay that back once we're ready to go borrow that money. And that would probably be a 30 to 50 year payback, depending on how we're set up and very low cost of interest. So it's a really good tool where we're gonna attempt to use, whether it's the SWIFT money or some money that's called uh, Chapter D funding, which are bond proceeds from the Water Development Board as well. Okay, great. Um in terms of water rates, I think I need to understand your customer base a little better in terms of your your customers. It sounded like when you mentioned earlier, and I think I assumed this, that when you provide water, you're providing water to, say, a municipal water utility that they – so you're, you're providing wholesale water. 
Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. That's right. Um, and so you also mentioned industrial and ag. So what what are the are you a wholesaler in that in that model yeah, as we well? Have basically, Dave, two customer bases. We have what's called a firm customer, and a firm customer pays right now uh, one hundred and fifty one dollars for a firm use of water, and then a $75 per acre foot reservation rate. And those firm customers are guaranteed they're going to have water. And uh, we sell to municipalities, we sell to industrial users who say, I need this amount of water and I'm paying you for that benefit to have it. And then we have customers who are called interruptible customers. An interruptible customer is signing up for water when we do have it, uh, they pay a rate that's negotiated and set by our board uh, every year. For the last three years, we have not had interruptible water for uh, two of the three interruptible water districts that have unique contracts uh, to them because we haven't had the water. We've been in this drought. And so in a given year, we do have water. Uh, they buy that water, and the proceeds come back into Elsery to help support our operations, our river management center, our technical staff and our support staff running the dams, the lakes, and other activities. Got it. Um, let's talk about the infra. The other we talked about funding for infrastructure. Uh, have you ever have you looked into P threes at all, or public private partnerships to to get some of that infrastructure built? Or what? And what's your take on P three agreements? No, I think P threes are an interesting tool. Uh, I used them a lot when I was at TechDot, trying to develop infrastructure that can be accelerated construction-wise because infrastructure faces the same challenges and how do you pay for it? Uh, whether you're in transportation or water, often you're just trying to get the project built. That's your primary focus and goal. On the water side, we have not had a program come forward of P3 that I would say jumps out at me that seems to make sense uh, to go forward. But having said that, if we had a someone come in who said, I can provide this service for you. I'm willing to put my capital in. I'm willing to be a partner. We'd have those conversations. Uh, so I think right now water has not been as proactive as perhaps other parts of infrastructure in the community for conversation, but it's something that could happen. Sure, and it's interesting. I know that uh, TIF TIFIA has been in place for a number of years on the transportation side, and I'm sure you have familiarity with that. And Congress, yeah, yeah and Congress just passed – uh, as part of the uh, uh, the Water Resources Reform and Development Act, uh, there's a kind of a pilot program in there that's modeled on TIFIA. And so I, I'm very interested to see whether these public-private uh, partnership agreements start taking off a little more in the water sector. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I, you know, I think WARDA has a lot of good things in there, and I think TIFIA as a program was very well-intentioned. Uh, one of the challenges they started running into, though, is that they really started running it like a bank. And so what I mean by that is that Tithia often had the mindset initially that they were going to try to be a patient lender. They'd be more collaborative. Uh, they would allow these programs to be built. And if you go back to what Tithia was intended to do, I think it's an opportunity for conversation. If it becomes very um, prescriptive, and very bank-like, then I think it's for someone like Texas when we have the ability to look at low cost of money, uh, flexible terms, those types of activities, 
and, and Tiffany often had this 30-year window. If we can go longer than that, it, it's hard to make the pitch. You want to see who comes in, who brings an offer. And the challenge we also have in many ways is that water has not been treated as a precious commodity from a pricing standpoint. And so the economics have to play out, whether it's a, a Tiffany-like loan or someone we're borrowing from, that you can show how you pay it back, how long it takes you to pay it back, where that money comes from, and can we treat it in a way that it really is a precious resource. And so I think, I think this whole conversation, David, you're spot on with is the challenge we have is when you have a P3 or when you just have LCRA or someone like us borrowing money, What's the level of that people understand you have to have this infrastructure to be successful as a state? Right. I, I agree with you. I think public education is is absolutely key um, in getting getting folks to understand kind of w- what they value water at and what they pay for water. And there's a huge gap there uh, between those two values. I had Steve Maxwell on recently on the, the podcast you know, he had four major themes. One of his biggest themes was that, hey, we're going to, we're entering a period where we're going to pay dramatically more for our water. Um, it's a, it's a, it, you look at the droughts in, in Texas and California, Colorado's gone through it. Uh, and the challenge we have is how do you price it? And then think about the Tiffany Lock program, though, at least in, in theory, if you get it, is that if you are able to take out five to seven years and you don't have to owe anything but interest, that's a good tool. And then you have the opportunity to refi if it comes along as well. So it really is, if you have flexibility, those are the kinds of things that I think attract uh, public entities to borrow against that. Right, right. Excellent points. Um, well, let's talk about a little more about the drought. You've you've kind of mentioned that it was it's a historic drought that you're you're going through. What what are the tools you've employed to? Um, get your customers to conserve more water? I think the first part to your point is public education. Uh, we have, and I think people are aware of it now, we're on the fact that you need to conserve. We're partnering with our municipalities and our customers on uh, water restrictions where they can go out. We're enforcing uh, policies where people who aren't watering when they should be uh, get written up and fined. So it's a whole host of both tools for proactive engagement, informing people on when they can water, and enforcing penalties against people uh, through the cities and municipalities when they shouldn't be. So it's all of that put together. Conservation, we're doing things with uh, landscape irrigation checker programs. We're using things that uh, contract holders may qualify for rebates and make your irrigation systems more efficient. We're also working on things like free low-flow showerhead programs, we're working on uh, technology rebate programs to allow businesses and schools to qualify for rebates to help make irrigation systems more efficient. So you're doing all these things on conservation, uh, once-a-week watering, for example, where you have a set time. And so we're trying to educate that. We're also talking about uh, the reservoir. You know, how do we get new supply? How do we develop that? When you're talking over about a resource that's only so big, how do you grow the pie? There's an economics associated with that as well about trying to make our supply larger. And then we're talking about, and I guess the five to ten year window, how do you take things like underground storage and utilize that? How do you uh, better have a conversation on desal, uh, especially brackish desal? 
So we're having a whole host of things from the immediacy of supply today to looking at technology development for the long term, 10 to 15 year. And then what does it cost? What does it add to that acre foot as you're looking at that? You really have an understanding of the economics behind it. Interesting stuff. Um, how is the how is the drought impacted water quality? You know, I think right now our water quality is really good. Uh, we are very proactive in measuring and monitoring and taking track of that. Uh, we believe that ours, based on the science, is among the cleanest bodies of water in the state, and our water quality monitoring ordinances are keeping it that way. We have volunteers help us along about 100 sites along the river in the Highland Lakes. We also have a state-funded program called Texas Clean Rivers. It's a partnership with our river authority and other agencies that tracks water quality issues. We also inspect and license septic tanks through the Highland Lakes, Lake Travis. We manage stormwater runoffs around the Highland Lakes, and we do a lot of water quality testing, not just for ourselves, but other agencies and entities as well along the basin. So I think our water quality is doing well, and you have to maintain that one for the system for public safety, and also the integrity of what you're trying to do that you're keeping that as a key priority. So uh, the drought is a very strong concern everywhere we go, but I think water quality is doing well. Oh, good. Um, when we started uh, the interview off, we talked a little about um, water and its relationship with the power that you're developing. Could you talk a little more about how you use water in power generation? Obviously, you have the hydro, but what about in the, on the electric side? You know, that's a big part of why we build uh, some of these lakes and reservoirs over the past 30 years. Uh, it's much like any other coal-fired or steam-fired uh, gas fire plant. You need the water for cooling. And once it comes in, it comes back out. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not using it uh, to just put it in and use it all up. It, it comes back out, and it's used for cooling purposes, and it goes back to the lake. But water supply is very important to keep that electric generation unit open. Back to that growth, uh, we're having significant challenges in the state because of, of the growth and that electric generation units have not been able to keep pace yet with building enough new capacity. So having that water to support the existing capacity is very, very important. It's something we're very focused on, uh, especially during this time of drought, to ensure that we don't do anything that puts our grid our electric grid in harm's way because we don't have the electric generation units we need because of a lack of water. So that healthy human safety, supporting the electric generation units and having the water for that is just mission critical. Right. And is is the drought impacting your ability to generate hydro in terms of reservoir levels? Yeah, absolutely. When you don't have the level of flow through you need, you're not going to run your hydro. Right. So those, those are... Uh, they're not utilized a great deal right now, primarily because of the drought. Okay, and so w- when do you use the hydropower now? Well, we have a significant rain event, and we're pushing a lot of water through the dams. Those when that's when they're spinning up. But the thing for LCRA, and I should have said this at the outset, is you know why was LCRA created? LCRA was created to do a couple things. First and foremost, it was created to stop flooding. So you know we uh, we built dams, we built lakes to stop flooding because the Colorado River was a wild river that caused a great deal of harm to our state for 100-plus years until LCRA was established in the 30s. Uh, the second thing was its water supply. So our, our key mission is stop flooding and then water supply for the population. And so when hydro comes in, that's an ancillary benefit as a result of that. Okay, terrific. 
Um, in terms of the the drought, you said you had a major rain event in on Memorial Day weekend, and um, if you if you could just, I know because I get this question a lot. Yeah. If you have a major rain event, how can you be in a drought? You know. Because you hadn't had major rain events for <laughs> seven years. Right, and, and so, so just exactly. So let me, let me unpack this more for you. So yeah. the, the first thing is we haven't had a lot of inflows, and so the ground has been so dry and so hard that all the water that's, that feeds springs and creeks and tributaries that go into the river have basically dried up. So it has been a brutal time because we haven't had water come in and replenish that and refresh it. So the inflows have been really devastated by the drought. Uh, and the major rain event, when you have – we need several of those. We need six or seven of those major rain events, not just one, because the ground is so parched, the lakes are so low, the capacity factor of utilizing that water is so dramatic. When you've got the size of cities we're supporting and the municipalities and firm customers, that you need uh, several rain events to make the lakes whole. Great answer. That's exactly what I was expecting. Well, you know, Phil, you have done a great job talking to us this morning about um, the LCRA and its mission. Greatly appreciate your time. Could you please, uh, for those folks who want to learn more about the LCRA or, or you, could you please uh, let folks know where they can go to find that information? Thanks, Dave. And I appreciate the opportunity today very much. The web address is LCRA. Dot org. That's lcra.org. And we look forward to people learning more about what we do and being a partner in the future as you look at how Texas is growing and trying to be successful together. Great. Well, thanks again, Phil. Greatly appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Take care. You, you bet. That was my interview with Phil Wilson of the Lower Colorado River Authority, a terrific guy who I thought really explained the things that the LCRA is going through in an easy-to-understand way. So here are my key takeaways. The first has to be P3s and the process that government-owned utilities go through when looking at funding infrastructure projects. Having a good toolkit for water projects is important in getting those projects moving. And Phil cited the SWIFT program in Texas and Chapter D funding available in Texas as important tools. He also made some very good points about TIFIA based on his experience in the transportation sector. It'll be interesting to see how TWIFIA plays out and in helping water infrastructure projects get funded, especially in a P3 setting. And again, WIFIA is the Water Infrastructure Finance and Investment Act, uh, which is part of the, the larger Water Resources Reform and Development Act that just passed Congress earlier this year. Well, Phil's thoughts on the difficulty of P3s to provide a good tool for water infrastructure funding was also an interesting perspective. P3 agreements in the water sector have had mixed results, and I'm really interested to see if WIFIA will provide a tool to make those P3 scenarios play out better. Next, the energy water nexus was very apparent in the LCRA. Phil indicated that the LCRA was formed for flood control and water supply purposes, but quickly found that electric generation went hand-in-hand -hand with that. And then subsequently, the LCRA grew into a major electric provider in Texas. Finally, the scope and scale of the drought in Texas was an important takeaway. The LCRA's interruptible water customers haven't received water in three years, and the public education, water restrictions, infrastructure projects, and the other measures that LCRA is implementing to cope with the drought were interesting to learn about. 
Well, as always, the show notes will be online at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 18. Let me know what interested you about the interview with Phil by leaving a comment on thewatervalues.com or by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com or you can tweet at me at DTM1993. Finally, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider joining HydroJack and Wally by leaving not only a rating but also a five-star review on iTunes and Stitcher and any other podcast directory on which you download the podcast. Providing a rating and a review would be very helpful in getting the word out and spreading the word about the podcast. And don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast and sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with us. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.